Hi, and welcome to the Part 3 with me podcast. The show that helps Part 3 students jumpstart into their careers as qualified architects and also to provide refresher episodes for practicing architects. I am your host, Maria Scudari. And this week I am joined with Lanre Bolade. Uh, and we will be talking about um, part three uh, examinations and the process of getting you through your part three exams and your interviews. Uh, so before um, we get started with Lan Ray, I will just uh, quickly introduce him. So he is uh, the co-founder and director of the award-winning architecture pra- practice, uh, Balade Design Studio specializing in sustainable design and placing people as the protagonists of each project they create. So he's the founder of the Architects app. Uh, I've already mentioned this in one of my other episodes, if you if you guys um, heard of that. Uh, this is the go-to app for architects and students with an extensive library for best practice, design guides, sustainability resources, product manufacturers and much more. He's a leading industry expert in design for manufacture and assembly, uh, MMC and offsite delivery, and was awarded the offsite pioneer of the year award for 2022. He's the co-founder of Paradigm Network, a professional network uh, championing black and Asian representation in architecture uh, and the built environment, as well as being a board member and trustee of Build Studios a hub for built environment aiming to inspire people in the built environment through collaboration and learning. So on top of his already very busy schedule, he also makes the time to sit on the design review panel for Design Southeast uh, London, Epps Fleet Design Forum and Oxford City Council. And he is a part three external examiner at Newcastle University. Uh, welcome, Lan Ray. Uh, thank you, Maria. It's uh, great to be great to be on the show with you. Uh, before we start, could you tell us a little bit more about you? How did you get into architecture? Sure. Um, I guess I'll start from my time at Newcastle University, um, nearly nearly twenty years ago now, uh, which is a rather scary thought. Um, <laughs> so I completed okay. my um, part one and part two there uh, between two thousand and three to two thousand and nine, if I recall correctly. Um, and yeah, it was a great experience. Um, yeah, I had, had a lot of fun uh, learning, studying architecture, made lifelong friends, um, and also experienced whilst I was doing my part, part two, also lived, uh, lived in Barcelona, uh, with yeah. a great kind oh, of wow. great city that is for six months as part of the uh, Erasmus Exchange Program, which is now, um, I guess, has been slightly uh, replaced uh, since we're no longer part of the EU, but um, I think mm. it's still uh, still kind of operating under a different name and guise. But that was a great experience mm. and really enjoyed enjoyed that. Um, so I guess um, during my part one placement, um, I worked with mm-hmm. IDAC Architects in Leeds, uh, where I grew up and my family is still based. Um, and yeah, that was a great experience working with that practice and being exposed to large scale architectural projects, uh, interior design, project management, as well as also international work. Um, I actually recall working on retail projects uh, for a major 
billionaire client in India. Uh, and oh. um, yeah, that was quite interesting. Um, yeah. The idea of working across multiple time zones and different uh, multiple international stakeholders, engineers based you know, around the world. Um, and whilst I wasn't a senior member of the team there, um, mm. it was a valuable kind of experience in terms of understanding how to deliver projects um, at large scale involving multiple different factors at quite an early stage in my career. So yeah, that was great exposure mm. to that kind of work. Retail did also healthcare projects whilst I was in, in the Leeds office uh, with Isaac Architects as well. Um, during the part two and I guess part three, I had the opportunity to work at slightly smaller scales. Um, one uh, experience was with Exide Architecture in Newcastle um, under uh, Tim Bailey, who's a great architect, architect uh, I guess some kind of informal mentor. Um, and I also uh, actually now tutor, I guess, alongside him as well um, in Newcastle. Mm. Um, I also nice. worked at a very kind of small scale with Goa Studio, a uh, kind of sole practitioner practice uh, for a while as well. And again, gained, um, I guess, experience uh, of what it kind of takes to, to operate um, practice in terms of the management side of things, um, observing, I guess, you know, the importance of operational kind of items, IT management, uh, culture, leadership, um, business development. Um, and I guess when you're in a small, small business and small practice, uh, it generally involves everybody shipping in uh, from time to time as well. So mm-hmm. um, I should also probably mention mm-hmm. that during, uh, yeah, just to kind of wrap up my uh, architectural education, I also, uh, after my part two, did a, a master's in project management as well. Um, and the primary reason for mm-hmm. for that was to, I guess, gain a better understanding of the practicalities of design and construction um, project management, um, but also equip myself with the skills uh, required to successfully manage projects and also lead multidisciplinary teams, which we often do as architects. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, this um, actually after my part three um, and, and getting a bit of experience in practice kind of led to my desire to actually uh, develop some client side experience as well. So uh, mm-hmm. I did that for a number of years um, in terms of undertaking design management lead roles for residential developers uh, and then more recently actually leading uh, an innovation team for a large housing association, helping them to support their transition from traditional construction more toward MMC and DFMA led design. So all of that has been great experience mm-hmm. and then obviously now uh, running uh, running a small SME architectural practice alongside my uh, my partner. Wow, that sounds amazing. You've been very busy. Bit of a whistle uh, stop tour of my career today. Yeah. Oh, wow. Uh, that, that's very impressive. That's amazing. And um, yeah, also being a part three examiner, that's um, that's a lot of um, things to, that you have going on. Yeah, must imagine must have a very busy schedule. Um, so um, just to jump in with um, today's topic. Um, so typically as examiners and from your experience, um, what do you expect to see from a candidate in terms of their knowledge um, and as them as individuals uh, in demonstrating uh, that they're ready to be qualified architects? Sure. Uh, good question. So I guess the ARB um, and RIBA criteria is obviously of, of great importance here. Um, and candidates will generally have to demonstrate uh, their capabilities um, across the five areas of professional competencies, which mm-hmm. are, uh, I guess, you know, PC1, professionalism, um, PC2, I guess, understanding clients, uh, users, and you know, delivery of, of, of architectural kind of services. Um, you understand some element of legal framework and processes, which is covered under 
uh, PC3, and then you've obviously got practice and management as well on the PC4, and then you've got the procurement side of, of, of delivery, um, which is on the PC5. So if I maybe just talk about each of those and just quickly kind of mm-hmm. identify what they what they entail, that might at least begin yeah. to shape uh, you know, some of the candidates' kind of understanding as to you know what they should be considering. So under professionalism, which is PC1, uh, mm-hmm. professional competency one um this is really kind of about accessing a candidate's ability to demonstrate uh, the professional behaviors um that is expected of an architect under the rIBA and ARB codes um so that's yeah. behaving with integrity um having sound ethical behaviors um and also being able to communicate effectively and present ideas and issues to clients and stakeholders, whilst also considering, obviously, uh, and relaying information around, you know, the management of resources, whether that's time, whether that's financial resources, budgeting, in order to enable a project to be delivered appropriately. So it's really about thinking about you know, understanding uh, what it means to be an architect and how to behave in a manner that is, um, I guess, respectful of the client's, uh, I guess, project time and resource availability as well. Um, in terms of practical competency too, uh, around obviously understanding clients, end users, and also delivered service, uh, we're normally looking for candidates to be able to demonstrate their understanding of the range of services that architects um, offer, um, but also yeah. uh, making sure that they can deliver those services uh, and prioritise the interest of the clients and other stakeholders as well. So it's having a, a good understanding of how to balance potentially competing interests, um, but also man- managing stakeholders who may be interested or potentially <clears throat> um, have challenges against uh, projects that are coming forward. So again, it's here about understanding the varying types of clients. Um, you know, in the residential sector, you have a number of different types of clients, but you've also got other clients who may be um, kind of lay clients, i.e. they are one-time clients, uh, not repeat type clients. So they often maybe do one project every 10 to 15 years. So you're often dealing with people who don't understand the design process, but also the development process and being able to kind of take them through that journey and managing managing the process appropriately. Um, you've also got to understand in this particular competency, architects contracts, terms of engagements, um, how to go about setting out scopes of services, um, but also understanding the, the legislative framework around appointments and contracts um, and, and thinking about professional uh, liability, negligence, and also obviously insurance that comes alongside that as well. So um, that's quite overarching, um, but definitely very important. Yeah. Um, in terms of uh, the legal framework and processes, in terms of under uh, professional competency three, um, it's really again looking at yeah the, the legal kind of um, I guess mechanisms that are available to architects, but also they may need to uh, interface with. Um, so you're considering things like you know planning legislation, having a good understanding of that, and being able to navigate the planning process. Uh, thinking about things like party wall. Um, uh, legislation, but also building regulations, historic building regulations as well, um, and knowing how to manage these uh, on a project, being how to, I'm uh, sorry, uh, being able to understand how to manage it on a project, but also uh, understanding you know the, the risks uh, when they crop up and how to mitigate them as well. Um, I've just got the final two, which is practice management mm-hmm. under uh, professional competency four, um, and again this is candidates being able to demonstrate uh, their understanding of, I guess, business priorities um, and the required management processes and risks of running an architectural practice. Um, And 
thinking about the necessary kind of uh, processes and systems that need to be put in place to manage that. So we're talking about office systems, administration, administrative procedures, um, and also the legislation that goes alongside them uh, to ensure that you can run an, an office, whether that's a, uh, a physical kind of space um, in the appropriate way and put in place the right kind of health and safety um, features and policies and procedures uh, to support that. Um, You've also got yeah uh, practice structures and also thinking about how do you yeah how do you kind of set up companies uh, the legal status and the various different business kind of entities that you can operate under as well so there's quite a few things to to kind of uh, mm -hmm. uh, capture in in that question but that's, yeah. those are the yeah, five okay. kind of key competencies that uh, examiners were looking uh, for candidates to demonstrate right across uh, their submissions and their interviews and, and respective uh, case studies and then so I guess sorry, the final Sorry, one actually is building procurement, um, which I didn't quite touch upon, but yeah, again, understanding how projects can be delivered, uh, but also thinking about, yeah, what are, you know, uh, scales of projects, what kind of procurement route is appropriate, uh, if it's public sector work, you know, how might that uh, potentially bring in different procurement aspects to play, and obviously thinking about program costs uh, and quality, and how do you balance those three, those three aspects of a, of a project. Mm -hmm. So um, following on from, from the PC, um, the five part three criteria uh, that, we, that you just mentioned, uh, what um, experience would you expect students to have in terms of the REBA work stages to link, to link into those? Sure. Um, so examiners are generally looking for, um, I guess, strengths uh, in obviously the areas of professional competencies um, that I mentioned uh, just now. But Every REBA stage will will call upon students to demonstrate these in, I guess, one way or another. Um, so, um, by obviously being a part three student, you're probably more likely to be exposed to, you know, a certain kind of number of the REBA stages more so than others. So, you know, two to five, mm -hmm. in my experience, seems to dominate. Um, mm -hmm. um, so it's not necessarily common to kind of see, you know, students uh, and candidates that have kind of full you know, RIBA kind of experience um, and activities in, in those areas, um, especially, um, you know, their large projects, it's quite difficult to kind of see them from, you know, REBA stage zero all the way to seven. Um, mm -hmm. If you're working in a, in a small practice on a small project, that is quite possible. Um, but then obviously, you don't often always see uh, some of the other complexities that the RIBA stage is have to offer um, on those small scale projects, irrespective of, um, I guess, what the students do uh, experience in terms of REBA stages, we are expecting to see that they take note um, of some of these stages that they may not have been heavily involved in um, mm. and demonstrate an understanding as to how their practice um, may have dealt with those stages um, for that particular project and how the project leads or the senior architects um, may have managed some of the kind of challenges in those in those stages as well. So it's very much about uh, students observing um, and analyzing um, what has happened in the stages that maybe they haven't been involved in as well as those that they have been involved with uh, and that being reflected uh, in their case studies, in their PDRs and their, and their personal appraisals as well. So something a lot of them um, ask me most of the time is um, site experience. So how crucial is that from your perspective for part three? Yeah, good okay. question. It's um, yeah, site experience is is, is absolutely you know um, kind of it's, it's so valuable. Um, so it's something that yes, you know, we should place importance on uh, in terms of students, uh, obviously examiners. But um, I think we we are understanding that it's not always possible for 
you know, for, for, for that experience to always come through as fully as one would appreciate. I think, again, it's, it's about that balancing act. So if your project mm -hmm. enables you to kind of, uh, you know, get good site kind of visibility um, and, and attendance, then we'd expect to see that kind of re reported in the PDRs, uh, in the case studies, um, and to be able to kind of talk about that quite confidently. If you've not been able to get you know, much side exposure because of the stage of the project or because of, you know, uh, things kind of guess misaligning in terms of resourcing, uh, then it's really about seeing some element of proactiveness from the candidates to think about how they could go about getting some side exposure. So if that's shadowing, um, you know, uh, a potential, another colleague, mem uh, colleague on another project potentially, uh, when they're going on site visits or arranging site visits, um, you know, for themselves outside of maybe the scope of the project. Um, it's about thinking about, you know, how can you potentially get the exposure that you need in order to, uh, to demonstrate, obviously, an understanding of, uh, of of the procurement process, but also how, uh, you know, buildings are put together as well. So we are expecting to see, I guess, some element of experience on site, um, mm -hmm. but it's also understanding and appreciating that, that that doesn't always fall in line with the program of your part three exam. So, uh, how you go about uh, getting that experience is often uh, probably sometimes more telling than the actual, uh, you know, undertaking mm -hmm. it during the project itself. So I guess them not necessarily having um, a great amount of site experience isn't very, very, like a very big problem, but it's more of how they go about it and how they demonstrate that they've tried to get the experience from other aspects. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And it's also an, under, yeah. an awareness of, what, of what's been happening on the project um, and being able to at least put that in the context of uh, any particular maybe, uh, you know, uh, challenges in terms of contractual issues, um, looking at you know, the contract administration aspects and being able to at least have some element of visibility and understanding of the implications of site implications and site impacts on things like contracts, um, but also delivery and program as well. Um, so yeah, it's, it's not it's not the be all and end all, um, mm -hmm. but it is important to try and get some uh, where you can. So I guess um, a good uh, point for them to to demonstrate this is through their PDI, PDRs, isn't that right? Uh, yes, absolutely. Yeah. So the PDRs kind of capture, obviously, uh, I guess the, the time spent uh, on various stages of the RIBA um, plan of work, um, and you get the opportunity to obviously demonstrate, you know, how much time you've been able to kind of go to site um, and what you potentially have observed in, in some element of small detail. Um, so yeah, that is a good place to document it, but we also expect to see that uh, quite well talked about within the case study um, mm -hmm. as well. That's a really good opportunity to kind of write at length uh, about things that one may have observed on site, uh, how that links back to the contract, uh, how that link, link, links back to, um, yeah, contract administration, um, but also resolving technical design issues as well and, and thinking about architects instructions and how those kind of issues are managed um, on, yeah, on projects. So when it comes to the PDRs, do you do you have any tips in terms of the structure, what they write about within the the PDRs, um, and when they should aim to have them signed off? Yeah. So in terms of the PDRs, I mean, there's quite, there's quite a robust structure already kind of set out by, I guess, the RIBA mm -hmm. in terms of the structure that. Um, uh, students and candidates should follow in terms of filling those in. So that's mm -hmm. largely in place. I think the key thing is really about being proactive with uh, the recording of those PDRs. So you really should be, you know, on top of it uh, from the, the from the moment you start working in terms of your part two placement. 
uh, making sure that however uh, seemingly small or innocuous the experience might be, it's still worth recording it, uh, mm -hmm. making sure that you demonstrate some element of learning from uh, from that particular uh, area of work or activity. Um, all of it adds up. Uh, and I think if you look at it rather than just, you know, ticking a box or filling in uh, a document for the sake of doing it, it's actually about it, all of that knowledge uh, accumulating over the course of 12, 18 months uh, and hopefully you undertaking some element of reflection, uh, whether it's monthly or quarterly, while you're filling out those PDRs and, and making sure that you're capturing your own learnings and being able to demonstrate that um, in the course of your case study, but also probably um, in your personal appraisal, um, as well as mm -hmm. you know that should then come through uh, in your in your um, viva or, or professional interviews. Uh, so you you just touched upon career appraisals. I get this a lot from students. Um, I don't think a lot of them understand the purpose of the career appraisal. Um, how do you think um, students should approach career appraisals in terms of what they need to uh, state in, in them and what they need to demonstrate with the career appraisal? Yeah, so the career, career appraisal um, from, I guess, the examiner's perspective is uh, an opportunity for the candidate to talk about their career to date so it's really an understand it's really kind of demonstrating how they've come into architecture uh, what, mm -hmm. what inspired them potentially to come into architecture right at the very beginning um, and then work their way through uh, I guess you know, part one part two uh, and, and to where they are now and it's it's looking at whether there is I guess some element of um, I guess consistency um, in terms of you know a career kind of path and progression um, and thinking about how they've, I guess, uh, articulated that in their, in their appraisal in terms of the actual uh, document. Um, we also look at obviously the structure uh, of that as well, uh, in terms mm -hmm. of, you know, is it kind of well presented? Is it logical? Um, does it flow in terms of uh, explaining uh, their career to date? Um, mm -hmm. I think most importantly, it's about making sure that candidates have been able to kind of reflect on each stage of their career to date and explain and demonstrate how they've learned uh, in those respective stages, how they've, uh, how those experiences have informed their decision making going on to the next stage in their careers um, and demonstrating, yeah, what, what it is they've learned as a whole and how that is making them hopefully, uh, you know, uh, an, the architect that they're becoming today. So it's very much an opportunity for them to kind of look back seven or so years um, mm -hmm. uh, to the point where they're sitting there part three and and have provide a good rounded um, analytical, I guess, career appraisal, uh, self-appraisal um, that kind of, yeah, very much uh, provide a, a very good uh, overview of the candidate that we are assessing um, and, yeah, get a, a good understanding of their understanding of their place in the world, but also within the architectural community as well. And uh, when it comes to the CV, I guess that links quite nicely with the career appraisal, doesn't it? So what would you expect the CV to cover that the career appraisal doesn't, for example? Yeah, so the I guess the career, I'm sorry, the CV uh, document mm -hmm. is obviously, yeah, uh, a, a pretty kind of standard requirement when you're going for, you know, job applications, etc. So we're expecting to see there again, you know, uh, the kind of standard information in terms of obviously, yeah, the formalities, the name, uh, contact details, et cetera, but really uh, your uh, university, um, I guess, degrees in terms of where you've been, uh, obviously uh, schools and grades, um, but also experience to date in terms of where you've worked, um, the projects that you've worked on, 
the typical kind of information that that is seen in CV. But again, it's it provides us with mm -hmm. a bit of a quick snapshot uh, mm -hmm. in terms of being able to kind of assess the candidate in terms of uh, who they are, what they've done to date, and then begin to marry that with obviously some other career appraisal as well. We're often looking for gaps sometimes um, in their CVs, which might not necessarily um, kind of you know align fully with what they might have said in their um, in the career appraisal, mm -hmm. or it might explain uh, potentially some elements of deficiencies, you know, in their performance within examinations, etc. So we're often looking for sometimes gaps that may not necessarily kind of um, uh, align, and then we can probe on that a little bit more to provide one clarity, also to explain mm -hmm. potentially why there might be a year gap or two year gap in certain areas. Mm -hmm. That's something I guess that you get from the interview, don't you? Yeah. It is, yeah. So the candidates have yeah. an opportunity to kind of clarify that and explain that during the interview process. Yeah. So, I mean, we're not looking to catch anybody out, but it's really to kind yeah. of explain what has happened in that particular uh, area. Uh, and if it's, you know, kind of helps explain a particular kind of um, uh, activity or um, a gap in another area, then um, it, it's more of a clarification process. Mm -hmm. So uh, moving on next to the case study. So um, this is something that um, I know a lot of um, students I, I know I had it when I was doing my part three uh, if someone doesn't have a project of their own on site so this is always a very tricky and interesting process um, so if they choose to shadow another colleague uh, how do examiners feel about that yeah very good question um, so shadowing is one way of obviously yes being able to to pick up experience. Um, it's not necessarily the uh, most recommended uh, form. Obviously, the, the most uh, recommended form is obviously undertaking uh, the case study you know, directly in terms of working on the project and gaining that practical experience you know, throughout the REBA stages. Um, there are you know, situations whereby shadowing is acceptable. Um, and, mm -hmm. you know, I, I think in most cases for examiners, it's probably a case where it might be for a period of time or a particular phase of a project, um, whereby it's just not been possible for the candidate to directly work on that because of potentially resourcing issues. So they may have been moved off a project they were working on for their case study to support um, the practice in another project for a particular mm -hmm. period of time. And in that period of time, they missed out on a particular phase of a project. So they might have to kind of shadow uh, the architect or one of their colleagues you know one day a week whilst they're working on another project um, in those kind of situations it's completely understandable uh, examiners will generally uh, be accepting of that um, but we still expect to see that the candidate has uh, picked up uh, learnings in that particular phase they've been quite uh, analytical um, about what has happened and they've been able to assess uh, and, and give um, some element of feedback in terms of uh, how they've seen that process uh, take place uh, and what their comments would be on it and, and where things have gone wrong how would they uh, potentially have addressed it differently so it's about making sure that they're not just being a passenger in that process but they're actively kind of engaged and, and analyzing what's happened and being able to comment on it uh, in a reflective manner as well. So how would you typically expect um, the students to structure their case studies on what they need to cover, like the, the key points they need to go through? Yeah, again, a really good question. So uh, the case study really should be 
an opportunity to kind of really kind of go through uh, a lot of the kind of professional uh, competencies that are talked about. So the five competencies are, the, I guess, the guiding kind of you know principles mm -hmm. and strands that candidates really need to kind of cover as much as possible. So the case study is an opportunity to do that. Um, one, because it's often over the course of 12, 18 months, sometimes even a couple of years. So you've got a really good opportunity to go through all of those um, and structure the case study in a way that is very much from you know, ideally from start to finish. So if you're lucky enough to kind of start a project at stage zero, see it all the way to stage seven in use and, and, and undertaking post-occupancy evaluation, that is in some ways, you know, the perfect the perfect case study. Um, but it's more than just going through from zero to seven. It's actually about what you as, a, as an individual have, have done on that case study, um, how you participated and what you've observed as well and reflected on over the course of 18, 12 months, 24 months, whatever it may be. So in terms of the structure of that case study, um, it should be very logical. It should flow in terms of, it shouldn't be kind of jumping from you know, stage five to stage two uh, or stage four to stage seven. It should be quite methodical and quite logical so that it is clear and easy for the examiner to follow um, and see that it has been, um, yeah, it has been kind of well structured and well written. Um, we're also looking within uh, the writing of the report in terms of the case study, um, not just saying what happened, but we start to see uh, some element of uh, analysis and reflection on why things happened and how things could have been done differently in order to improve the outcomes as well. So it's very much a focus on uh, analysis and reflection uh, and being able to draw upon uh, your wider reading and wider understanding of the industry and being able to use that to inform the case study as well. So if you don't necessarily know why something's happened, it's about talking about the fact that you've gone away, you've done research, and now you understand why that went wrong at the particular moment in time, uh, but, but showing that kind of wider reading and wider appreciation of, of, of things beyond the project as well is quite important to kind of pull through into the case study. There are other things around legislation, but also professionally mm -hmm. around professional indemnity insurance, uh, around ethics, uh, and being able to kind of show that you're not just doing, but you are analysing and reflecting as well. I guess that's the main um, aim and focus for the case study, for them to just demonstrate that they understand every step that they've gone through through that project. Indeed, yeah, it's about understanding, but also critical, uh, critical analysis and critical reflection as well is quite important. Okay, excellent. Uh, so next, moving on to the uh, practice papers. Uh, sure. So would you expect students to review their answers from the practice papers? And so say they've sat down the exams and before the interview, um, would you expect them to review their answers and fill in any gaps that they think they've missed? during the examination time? Absolutely, absolutely. I think examiners are definitely looking for uh, students to, to kind of come to the interviews uh, having undertaken a good amount of, uh, of reading of their own paper and understood where they might have gone wrong, uh, where they kind of fell short, um, any gaps that they may have missed and really kind of demonstrate that they've gone away, they've done some further reading uh, and they now understand potentially what they didn't have either time to do in terms of within the exam itself um, or what they completely you know missed and didn't quite appreciate um, in reading the, the questions. But yeah, we're expecting, you know, 
them to kind of demonstrate they've gone away and thought about it a little bit more uh, and they've upskilled their themselves in terms of their knowledge uh, to be able to kind of answer that question fully within the interview so as, as examiners we read the questions obviously we'll score them um, and we will make notes around you know where they haven't quite uh, fully understood the question where they've not quite fully got to uh, the full extent of, uh, of, of a high scoring mark and we'll try to probe uh, and, and, and get the candidates to expand on that uh, in the interview to demonstrate uh, that they are uh, capable of, of understanding uh, I guess some element of the response to the question and even if they don't necessarily know the answer it's probably about understanding where they would go to find that answer and where they might mm -hmm. expect to to be able to kind of uh, resolve the issue or how they might be able to, able to resolve the issue so if they if they didn't um, do a question the right way you would give them the opportunity of how they could potentially approach the question differently yes absolutely yeah yeah uh, so what steps do you think students should take to prepare for the interview Oh, all right. OK, um, well, <laughs> practice, I think, is, uh, is yeah. a good one in terms of uh, getting some practice yeah. from uh, part three candidates that have maybe passed through their respective uh, practices in the recent years. So any 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 architects who are now qualified within their practices who have done uh, the course, maybe at the university which they're sitting the part three at um, is always helpful. Um, they should normally have a study group, I would imagine, um, in terms mm -hmm. of yeah, uh, fellow students who are studying alongside them at the same time. So again, it's probably about getting together with them and, and practicing and yeah, uh, you know, supporting each other in that way. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, there may be, there may be, uh, you know, office mentors that they might have as well. Uh, but it's definitely mm -hmm. worth actually going through that process of, of getting somebody to kind of read uh, your case study, your CV uh, and your personal appraisal and uh, asking them to, you know, provide you with uh, half an hour to maybe uh, undertake five or six questions and, and just probe and, and ask and yeah help you to kind of at least be prepared for what may come what may come out of that interview process. Now, one common misconception sorry I know um, some students can have some time is is say if they miss a question in the interview does that automatically mean they failed? Um, no definitely not uh, I think it's um, it's an opportunity to to one, um, if they miss a if they miss an opportunity a, a, a question in the interview, there's an opportunity, I guess, from uh, their side to one uh, get some clarity, I guess, on, on the question. If they don't quite understand it, we're there to help them as much as possible. Um, mm -hmm. But if they don't understand, it's always best to say, actually, uh, I'm not too sure on that. However, this is where mm -hmm. I would go to find potential solutions. We're looking to see the candidates are being proactive uh, and thinking mm -hmm. about again uh, the wider context in terms of where they can go to find information how they should find information if they were managing a situation which involved risk how would they best mitigate that and we're not expecting candidates to know uh, everything uh, the mm -hmm. whole point of the part three is that actually at the point at which you pass your part three um, we're not saying that you are uh, completely now able to go and run any project and manage a practice what we're saying is actually you've demonstrated the core competencies that enable you to now uh, take the next steps in developing your career as an architect. So um, getting one question wrong doesn't mean that you have failed, mm -hmm. but I think it's, it's uh, the examiners having the confidence that the candidate uh, understands why they have mm -hmm. potentially not got that question right. 
but how they would go about addressing it in the future and being able to demonstrate that they have a good enough knowledge of, of architecture and the industry to know how to go about uh, addressing that issue going forward. Yes, definitely. So uh, what can uh, potentially students do if they um, fail any of the course admissions? Is it possible just to fail the interview, for example? Um, yeah, so every every university will probably differ in how they mm -hmm. uh, how they obviously assess uh, candidates in some ways or another. Um, so mm -hmm. uh, at Newcastle University, where I'm an examiner, um, mm -hmm. if you fail one of the the modules, let's say it is the exam papers, um, then there are opportunities to reset that particular module. Um, mm -hmm. So it's not a case of you know you fail one and you failed uh, the whole exam. It's more mm -hmm. about uh, if you don't perform well in one aspect, then you are given opportunities to reset that uh, so that you can bring that score up to par with the others and therefore pass as a whole. Um, but yes, in most cases, if you do fail one, then you can't necessarily pass the full exam at that moment in time. You have to reset that in order to pass it to the accepted level, uh, which is above a certain score. And then once you've hit that parameter for all of the various, um, I guess, assessment criteria in terms of exams, uh, uh, PDRs, uh, case studies, then obviously you can, uh, you can be passed and obviously then call yourself an architect. So um, it's not one strike and, and, and you're out forever. Mm -hmm. There are opportunities <laughs> to, uh, yeah. to, to, to redeem oneself, so to speak. <laughs> Great. I'm sure the, the listeners will be very happy to hear that. <laughs> um, thank you. That was very that was very thorough and very useful, Lanre. Do you um, do you have any last few tips and advice to help our listeners in passing their part threes? Sure. Um, probably only uh, that. Yeah. As soon as you as soon as you get uh, get started in terms of your your you kind of made the decision that you want to start your part three then it's probably just about being as prepared as possible. Um, understand the assessment criteria in terms of how you will be assessed, uh, what the requirements are, and just plan and be as proactive as possible in getting all that information together uh, in good time. Um, there's nothing like kind of, you know, rushing uh, for, you know, a submission in terms of case study or exam or even interview. Um, it's better just to be prepared um, as much as possible and speak to as many people as you can within your practice who've gone before you and done it um, and try and glean as much advice uh, from them as possible. Um, and then the final thing really is just to read as widely as possible as well and really demonstrate a good awareness uh, of the industry um, and beyond, I guess, your practice uh, and maybe even architecture, but really understand the development industry as a whole, which we operate within in the built environment, because all of that will shape your understanding of how to kind of manage uh, projects, manage risk, um, but also you know, manage a business as well, which is ultimately uh, what, you know, uh, architecture is, you know, you're running a practice and, and that is a business and you're operating um, uh, in the, in the, yeah, in the global kind of economy as well. Excellent. I think that's, uh, that's a perfect place to conclude. Thank you very much for joining me today, Lanray. Thank you, Maria. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. If you would like to get in contact with me, please feel free to email me on the address provided in the show notes. Thank you for listening. This is an educational show aimed at supporting the future generation of architects. The information, opinions and recommendations presented in this podcast are for general information only and any reliance on the information provided in this podcast is done at your own risk. Please join me next week for some more part three with me time.